Uh, well, my name's Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square. Uh, please open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9 is going to be and continue to be our primary text uh, to consider this uh, Advent season as we continue to reflect upon uh, what it means that Jesus uh, has come. And last week we considered in verses 1 and 2 in Isaiah chapter 9 uh, the hope that the Lord provides for us in Christ. And today we're going to consider joy. And I think it's fair to say that defining joy is fairly tricky. It's a tricky thing to define joy and to understand exactly what it, what it means. According to New York Times columnist David Brooks, he says that happiness tends to be individual. He says that we measure it by asking, are you happy? Joy tends to be, he says, self-transcendent. And Professor Miroslav Volf, who I think has one of the coolest names on planet Earth, Miroslav Volf says that joy is not, self, is not a self-standing emotion. It is the crown of a well-lived life. In other words, I think what both of these scholars have in mind, both of these writers have in mind, is that joy is the culmination of a well-lived life. But then uh, Marie Kondo comes along, if you have heard. She comes along and sees joy in a fundamentally different way. She started a revolution on Netflix by helping people simply tidy their houses, by asking one question. You know what it is. Does it spark what? Joy. If it does, keep it. If it does not spark joy, get rid of it. Designer Ingrid Fattel uh, Lee agrees that joy is a small moment. In 2019, at the Aspen Ideas Festival, she explained that happiness is a broad evaluation of how we feel about our lives over time. She goes on to say that joy is little moments that make us feel more alive. So the question for us, as we hear these and many other voices teach us about joy in our particular age, is joy the culmination of a well-lived life? In other words, something we don't really fully grasp until we look back on our lives? Or is joy that thrilling spark when you have just the right amount of socks in your house? Is, is that joy just part of your everyday life? Is it a small moment or is it the sum of all of your moments? Or if you're, if you're a middle child, you have a tendency to believe, well, it's got to be both, right? It's both. What, what is this actually made of? What is joy made of? See, when we think about joy, we should ask, what are we actually talking about? What are we actually feeling and thinking, especially this time of year? After all, joy is the central theme of the proclamation that a collection of angels announce over a group of shepherds, right? If you remember from Luke's gospel, they, they speak to these very fearful men who are probably terrified of this bright shining display that shows up in the middle of the night. They say, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great, what, joy that will be for all the people. See, there's joy at the birth of Christ. But also the writer of Hebrews, as we've already considered today in our liturgy, says this, that looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. There is joy at the death of Christ. So there is joy at the birth of Christ. There is joy at the death of Christ. In other words, joy bookends the story of our faith. Have you ever thought about that? That you right now, by God's grace, are surrounded by joy. You are kept in joy. This is the beginning of our story, and this is the culmination of our story. But what are we talking about when we talk about joy? We're in Isaiah 9, and Isaiah now moves from hope 
to joy. Remember, Isaiah is prophesying to God's people about their particular circumstance, about what they're going through. Against God's will, King Ahaz had alleged himself with a people who did not believe in the God of the Bible and did not worship the God of the Bible, a group in Assyria. And so he writes, Isaiah does, to warn this king and all of Israel that this is not going to go well. That if you allege yourself with a kingdom and trust in their power and in their riches and in their um, ability more than you trust God, that's not going to go well. But in the middle of that critique and in the middle of that warning through Isaiah, God brings hope in darkness. Specifically, he says that a new king would be born. And in their particular moment, that likely was Hezekiah, Ahaz's son. God would bring hope, light, and restore his people through this new king. That was his plan. And that happened about 700 B.C. But by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Isaiah is not just talking about one king. He's talking about two. He may not even have known it. He's speaking about two kings. Isaiah is writing about another king that would come, King Jesus. And it's clear that as Isaiah unfolds even this particular portion of his writing, here in Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, this could not possibly be fulfilled by one human king. There is too much at stake here. See, it's clear no human could do it. So we learned last week that the hope that we long for and the hope that Isaiah wrote about was actually a person. That hope is the coming king. Hope is the Messiah. Hope is Jesus Christ. Hope is light that shines in the darkness. Now from verse 2, Into verse 3 of chapter 9, Isaiah moves again from hope to joy. And here's what he says. Let's look at it together. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 3. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoils. Do Do you notice in a single verse, joy comes up four times? The message ought to be clear for us. Look at it again. Isaiah says, increase joy. He says, they rejoice. He says, joy at harvest, and they are glad. Let let me just holler at your heart for just a second. Many of us believe that we are not supposed to have joy as followers of Jesus. In fact, if we have joy, that's a nice add-on to just the truths that he gives us in the Bible. That that joy is something that happens outside of God's design, even though maybe he's not mad at it. What I'd like to suggest to you today, and what I believe is the beauty of Advent season, is that joy is directly connected with the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Joy comes with Jesus. Jesus is our joy. Joy is not a nice icing on top of the cake. Joy is the entire feast. Joy is everything that we receive from our Lord. There is joy at his birth, there is joy at his death, and there will be joy in kingdom come. This is what Isaiah is getting at, something fundamentally different to the way we often believe and think about joy within religious or spiritual spaces. This verse is packed full of joy. But is this joy in the moment? Is this joy over a lifetime? What are we talking about when we talk about joy? In order to help us, I hope, gain clarity about what Isaiah in particular and the Bible in general has in mind when it comes to joy, I'd like to consider three things today. The imposter of joy, the reason for joy, and the goal of joy. The imposter of joy, the reason for joy, and the goal of joy. Let me pray for us and ask for God's help. Father, we're coming to you because along with the disciples, we simply ask, as we've looked and desired for life and joy and hope and a lot of different little and small things this past week, where else are we going to go? You've got the words of eternal life. 
So fill us with those words. Those words that don't just make us say, mm, that's interesting, but words that somehow rewire our hearts and minds in righteousness. Words that are living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, able to pierce and to divide between bone and marrow. That it cuts both, both ways. Your word comforts us in our affliction and it afflicts us in our comfort. And so help us to submit to your Holy Spirit today. Not to simply make a plan about how to live differently tomorrow, but in this moment, surrender to you that we might be changed on the spot. We'd actually leave with an understanding and an experience of joy that we perhaps had not previously. You can do that. You can do that and so much more. You can do a thousand uncountless things that I can't even consider and think about right now. And so we simply say there is no one like our God We thank you that you have words of eternal life and that you are so gracious to speak them to us. And so we trust you, we submit to you in the name of Jesus. Everybody agreed and said, amen. Well, what I think we may find particularly and immediately striking about Isaiah's words is these two metaphors that he brings about in a single verse. Along with all of this joy, he talks about the harvest and he talks about the battle. Let's read it again, Isaiah 9, verse 3. It says that you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Isaiah illustrates joy through two very common experiences of a harvest and of a battle. So even though likely few of us have actually been in war or in conflict, some have, but few have, or have harvested crops, the metaphor, I think, and these two metaphors, I think, are quite simple to understand. An agricultural harvest is the result of months of intense labor and intricate planning. A military victory is the culminating prize of a great, a lot of great risks and sleepless nights and skill and effort. In short, I think what Isaiah is saying is that joy comes through work and suffering. Joy comes through work and suffering. There, there's something, I think, instinctual about this, something that we know if we've never quite articulated it that way, that joy comes on the other side of hard work and prolonged suffering. Think about it. There are few things that are more joyful than experiencing the reward and relief on the other side of long nights, incredible setbacks and relentless effort and severe disappointment. And so after all of that, after all going through something that is really challenging or something that is really difficult, like a global pandemic or like a hard season in school or in your job, after all of that, if your boss or your teacher acknowledges you publicly, something erupts in your soul. You're seen. Or you finally get that promotion or graduate or hear that you are expecting a child after years of disappointment. We experience this great joy, not despite the work and suffering, but in many ways through the work and suffering. Are you with me? This is what Isaiah is getting at. And yet, even though, here's what's crazy about being a human, even though we all can say yes and amen to that, we spend most of our lives avoiding work and avoiding suffering. We know that joy shows up through those things, but we still don't want those things, right? Is it just me? It's cool. I'll be honest today. I don't want to work, and I don't want to suffer when it really comes down to it. I just want the joy, right? I just want the joy. I mean, this may be a little bit kitschy, but isn't there something going around like Reels or TikTok about skipping to the good part, and you throw your hand in front of the camera, and then everything's okay? That's what I want my life to be, right? 
My kids have like terrorized the entire house. I wave my hand in front of the camera. Everything is in its exact appropriate place. I don't want to clean up. I don't want to give consequences and yell at them. I just want to skip to the good part, right? We know that joy comes through work and suffering, but we don't want to work and we don't want to suffer. I think it's because we know that something else is at stake too. I think that we know if we work hard, we might be disappointed. We know joy is possible. We also know so is disappointment. Similarly, we know that when suffering gets redeemed, it will produce joy, but we always steer, steer clear of suffering because there is a possibility that after we suffer, we won't know why and won't have anything to show for it. It will seem meaningless. See, joy comes through work, joy comes through suffering, but we still avoid work and suffering. And I think this tension shows up in a couple of places through Scripture. And we won't have time, I think, to give credence to these two particular texts. And so I encourage you to go back to them later. A couple of ways that we see this tendency of our relationship with joy, if you will. That we want to have joy, but we don't want to work and we don't want to suffer. Uh, consider 2 Samuel chapter 6. Some context here before I read a couple of verses. The Ark of the Covenant is the dwelling place of God. It was a physical box holding the Ten Commandments, Aaron's rod, and some manna. We see that in Hebrews chapter 9. They, there were strict laws that God gave his people, not only about how to construct the ark, but how to move it around, how it was to be cared for. And in this particular season of the life of Israel, it had been stolen again by the Philistine uh, nation, the Philistine army. And so Israel is now getting it back. Israel's getting it back, and they're pumped, and they're bringing back the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, led by, by David and thousands of his men. And here, the 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 3 through 7. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the Ark of God. And Ahio went before the Ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his heir. And he died there beside the ark of God. So in short, what was this incredible celebration becomes a funeral procession. In short, where we see the celebration of all of the house of Israel. They're celebrating, they're singing, they're dancing. And then Uzzah reaches out, touches the ark, and he dies right there. Now, at first reading, we may think God is being incredibly harsh and incredibly quick-tempered. And yet, when we investigate and interrogate this text, we find this interesting language in verse 3. There's a new cart. A new cart. Now, you might, that might be just kind of like this innocuous detail, but what's really interesting is that there was another nation that came up with a different way to carry the ark too, the Philistines. So in this particular way, God's people, through innovation and really through their own comfort, are creating a new way to move the ark around that is more conducive to what they desire. So they want to celebrate, but they also want it to be easy. God sees this as such a violation of what he instructed them to do and so reminiscent of a pagan nation that when Uzzah touches the ark, which is really one of a succession of sins, he thinks, or rather God determines and judges that it is worthy of death. See, this is the first way that I think that we seek joy by avoiding work and suffering. We pursue joy through automation and comfort. Through automation and comfort. After all, let's just be honest, it's a lot easier, I imagine, to push a cart than it is to carry it. 
And so God's people are like, this is easy. How could it be wrong, right? This makes our lives a lot easier. Then we can celebrate. We can actually put both of our hands in varsity worship, right? With both of our hands in the air. We're not carrying anything. Surely God will be pleased by this. See, it's a lot easier to push a cart than it is to carry it. But joy through automation and comfort, what the Scriptures teach us here, is fleeting. It is here for a second, and then it is gone. Similarly, in David's story, a couple of chapters later, in the spring when David was supposed to go off to war, he stayed home. He stayed home and began to take a walk, got up from his couch, it says, and he walked on the roof and he saw a beautiful woman bathing. And if you know the story, you know that it it went from looking at her to taking her for himself, sleeping with her, and she conceives a child. She is married to a man named Uriah, who was actually out at the war that David was supposed to be on. See, notice... David stays home not only to protect himself so he didn't have to go to war and risk any threat or harm to himself, but he also arrogantly and violently begins to pursue his pleasure at the expense of others. See, when Bathsheba becomes pregnant, he actually tries to cover it up. First, through deception. He invites Uriah to come back home and sleep with her, and Uriah won't do it because he says, if all of my brothers in arms are off in war, how can I act like everything is okay at home? An incredible indictment on David's comfort. Secondly, David deceives and tries to cover it up through taking Uriah's life. He puts him on the front line and tells the commander to back off so that Uriah is defenseless. See, David's pursuit of joy through self-protection and pleasure ends in murder and consequence and grief. See, the second way I think that we seek joy by avoiding work and suffering is that we pursue joy through self-protection and pleasure. Through self-protection and pleasure. But what I think the Scriptures teach us here and elsewhere is that joy through self-protection and pleasure is really shallow. It's only skin deep. See, so in, in summary, a couple of, again, sh- snapshots here that I encourage you to go back to 2 Samuel 6 and 2 Samuel chapter 11. But, but in summary, Israel wants to celebrate the return of the ark. That's good. That's wonderful. They should, but they don't want to sweat. David wants to enjoy his life as king, but he avoids risk and accountability, which leads to a kind of joy that is fleeting and shallow. See, they want joy, but they don't want work and suffering. And I think we do too. In fact, many of us, I think in this particular age, even define joy as the absence of work and suffering. If I don't have to work, like vacation is joy. Why? Because I don't have to email anybody, right? Not suffering is really, really good because suffering hurts. That must be joy. So we've even begun to define joy as the absence of work and suffering. I I believe that this prevailing sentiment in our hearts defies the definition that James gives us in James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and the steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing." You see, work and suffering are joyful to the Christian because they produce something in us that comfort and self-protection cannot. Suffering and work, trials, tribulation, effort, right? Produce something within the follower of Jesus that self-protection, comfort, avoiding work and suffering cannot. 
This is the imposter of joy. The imposter of joy is a happiness which ultimately is centered on myself, and it's a gladness that we believe we can achieve without cost. It's a joy centered on myself, and it is a gladness which I think I can achieve without cost. That's the imposter of joy. So what's the real reason for joy? What's underneath this? Well, let's get back to the metaphor. It's a harvest, and it's a battle. It's through work and suffering. However, I think because of this prevailing imposter and the prevalence of this idea in our heart, we wrongly interpret, I think, what these two metaphors are all about. When we hear language of harvest, when we hear language of battle, see, we wrongly assume there is joy at the harvest because the work is over. We've endured hardship, in other words, and we can now, what, do what? Eat. We can eat because we harvested everything that we've grown. Now we can eat and we can chill. In other words... The discomfort is over, and the reward is joyful. This is, I think, how we wrongly interpret because of the imposter that's alive in our heart. Similarly, we wrongly assume the joy of victory is found only when suffering ends and in the glory of exerting power over someone else. But church, in the Hebrew consciousness, the harvest was a supernatural result of God's provision and grace. Similarly, a military victory was the work of God's mercy and power. In other words, joy comes through work and suffering, but hear this, not ours. Joy comes through work and suffering, but not ours. The celebration is about God's blessing through the harvest. The gladness is about God's deliverance from war. After all, the joy comes from the harvest itself. If it was just that, what I got, then it would come and go with the seasons. As soon as you ate all of the food, the joy would be gone. As soon as you enjoyed all of the spoils, the joy would be gone. Similarly, in victory, what happens the next time you have to go to war? What happens the next season when you need more food? See, joy without cost does not last, and joy centered on self is only skin deep. The imposter of joy, I think, makes two presumptions, and here's where we just want to interrogate this impulse that we have in our hearts, that we might hear the truth and beauty of Jesus in this. See, I think these are the two presumptions. We presume that we know what will make us happy and that we know how to get it and we can get it. That we know what makes us happy and that we can get it on our own. This is the two presumptions, I think, that we often make about joy. We think joy comes from the actual harvest, the actual spoils. We think that food and stuff, in other words, will make us happy and that we can get it ourselves. It's an age-old lie that carnal gratification makes us glad and is within our reach. But the real reason for joy is not our labor or our success or our power. Rather, the real reason for joy is God himself. See, joy comes through work and suffering, but not through ours. Joy comes through the character and grace of the God who intervenes on our behalf, who provides for us, who protects us, who delivers us. That's what David makes plain in Psalm 92, which we read a little bit earlier. And in fact, this is a psalm that is to be read on the Sabbath. In other words, on the day of rest. Now, why is this so critical? It's written for a day in which God's people are meant to cease from productivity. They're supposed to lay down their hustle. They're supposed to stop working as God rested from his work on the seventh day. But we don't rest because the work is done. Have you ever felt that? I can know I'm supposed to rest, but there is more that I need to get done before I feel like I've earned my rest. See, that's the problem with us in rest. We think it's something that we can earn. Are you tracking with me? You can't earn rest. I I can't earn rest. There's always more work to be done. 
There is always more work to be done. There's always an impulse to do more work. See, we don't stop working because the work is done. We stop working because we are free. We stop working because work doesn't own us. We stop working because, because productivity does not dictate my joy, right? Someone else does. Someone else's work. Someone else's energy. Someone else's suffering. See, God is the one who defines our joy. And because he makes us glad, it's a response then. Because he gives me joy, we do meaningful work and we endure suffering for joy set before us. See, you get joy before the work is done and in the middle of the harvest and in the middle of the battle. That's the kind of joy I desire. Not one that's waiting for me on the other side of conflict or on the other side of hopefully a good bumper crop season, right? I want a joy that is with me at the beginning with the birth of Christ and a joy that is with me at the death of Christ and that is promised to me in the future to come. Joy in the beginning, joy in the middle, and joy in the end. Am I preaching to you yet? That's the kind of joy I desire. The imposter of joy says, you know what makes you happy? Go and get it. Jesus says, I've already given you joy. You can be joyful right now. He doesn't dangle it out like a carrot and say, if you work hard, I'll give it to you. He says, look at my son. It's already yours. David understood this in Psalm 92. He says, for you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hand, I sing for joy. Joy is a result of the works of God, not our works. And David explains this. These works of God, which include the vanquishment of his enemies and the flourishing of righteousness. And he uses this agricultural language of trees and plants and fruit in Psalm 92. See, joy comes through God's victory on the battlefield or the spoils. And joy comes through his invisible hand bringing about his purposes in the world or the harvest. See, the reason for our joy is not the harvest itself. It's not in food. The reason for our joy and the victory is not the victory itself or the spoils. It's not in stuff. Rather, the real reason for joy is in the fact that something we could not make happen has taken place by the providence and power and grace of God. In other words, we were hungry and he fed us. Our backs were against the wall in a battle, and he saved us and delivered us. See, the reason for joy is that when we needed nourishment, God brought the harvest. The reason for joy is that when we were at war, God brought the victory. Joy is anchored in God's character, in God's faithfulness to intervene on behalf of his people. Why is this so important? Because when, when, when we're sad, when we're despondent, when we're in despair, the imposter of joy tells us, well, what makes you happy? Go and get it. I, I don't know about you, but when I start thinking like that, I make terrible decisions. But, it, but in sadness and despair and despondency, what, what the gospel teaches us is there is joy, 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 joy down in your heart that right now despair is lying to you. Despair is a light and momentary reflection. Your joy is a truer reality than whatever sorrow is laying heavy on your heart. You may not feel better tomorrow, but seeking your own joy will actually only complicate your grief. And the imposter of joy tells us that happiness can come without cost and it's centered on ourselves. The reason for joy is that God intervenes, that he is providential over all things. So what's the goal? What's the goal of our joy? Well, remember last week, this idea of double fulfillment from Isaiah, or from any prophet, really, 
In other words, his, his word in Isaiah has hope for today and hope for tomorrow. Joy for today and joy for tomorrow. There is a point to this joy in the immediate for Isaiah's readers, but there's also this future fulfillment to come. A child would be born. A king would be born within a generation. But another king, uh, and as uh, one scholar put it, a true and better king, in fact, would be born whose birth would be good news of great joy. And when Jesus comes, he comes actually for a spiritual harvest. He comes to secure a cosmic victory on a cosmic battlefield. And it's in that harvest, in these spoils, if you will, that we find the goal of joy. See, Jesus the Messiah comes talking about a different kind of harvest. You remember from Matthew 9, he looks at his disciples and he says, what? The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. So the harvest of crops becomes not just about food, but it's a harvesting of souls, of God's people. That's the work. People themselves are the harvest, and Jesus identifies himself as the Lord of the harvest. In other words, Jesus is the one who brings joy. Joy comes through the work of Christ to gather his people and to save them. Not only so, but Jesus came to fight a battle. But Jesus comes, unlike any other king, to the battlefield. He doesn't come with a sword. Jesus actually comes to a battlefield to be killed, not to kill. It's counterintuitive. He comes to suffer. And the reason he fights differently than any other king is because his kingdom is unlike any other kingdom. See, in in John's gospel, he records a conversation that Jesus had with Pilate, the, the governing authority of the day. And Pilate was trying to figure out why in the world would you want to die? What is in this for you? Are you really some kind of king? Do you really know the truth? And Jesus answered, looks right at Pilate, square in his eyeballs, and says, my kingdom is not of this world. And then he says, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. In other words, he said, I wanted you to capture me. How dope is that? Jesus looks at the guy who thinks he's in charge and says, if I didn't want to be here, I wouldn't. He's like about this kingdom. He's about this fight that Pilate can't even see. And the spoils of an earthly war are what? I don't know, gold and goods and clothes and this sort of thing and treasure, right? But the spoils of a war waged by a kingdom which is not of this world are rewards which those spoils cannot purchase. They are rewards like forgiveness, eternal life, and joy, things that you and I cannot afford. We cannot chase down on our own. Jesus brings you a joy that you cannot touch without him. Joy comes through this suffering servant and a victory that Jesus has over Satan, sin, and death. And as the great composer Johann Sebastian Bach said of Christ's passion, is that your bitter suffering brings thousands of joys. It's counterintuitive. One of the reasons that we believe the imposter is it kind of makes sense to us. The gospel doesn't make really human sense at first blush, that my joy is through the bitterness of suffering. And yet when we look at Christ, we see that by his wounds we are healed. We see by his death we find life. We see through his sorrow we find gladness. You see, the goal and the fulfillment of Isaiah's words are met in Christ. This is what we celebrate this time of year. We celebrate it every time we gather as God's people. Jesus brings the harvest. Jesus secures the victory. It's about his work. It's about his suffering. It's about joy in him. 
He alone brings about the goal of joy, the completion or the fulfillment, the culmination of it all. And so he looks at his disciples, and here are these words for you today, church. He looks at his earliest followers, and I believe by his Holy Spirit now speaks to us, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus is joyful. Ever think about the joy that Jesus has? I don't, often I just think about him being like really serene and having like, you know, verbal fisticuffs with people with like a steel vision, you know. He's joyful. How could he produce so much gladness? How could he give so much joy if he says that I'm giving you my joy? In other words, I am joyful. Jesus is so joyful that he just can't contain it. He gives his joy freely. Therefore, joy is not merely an emotion, but like hope, joy is a person. Isaiah says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. See, the next human king, Hezekiah, would do this. He'd bring joy, but only temporarily. It's a warning for us that any earthly king only brings temporary resolution, only temporary joy. Like all other joy which is wrapped up in human work and effort, it is shallow and it won't last. But real joy is that eternal emotion of the soul which finds contentment and safety in God. Real joy, then, is a result not of our work and suffering, but of the work and suffering of Jesus. And this joy, I think, shows up in countless moments. Yes, even in little projects of organization, because we are mirroring the great order of a divine king who is over us. In those little moments of gladness. But also being able to look back on an entire life and say, look at what God did. Look how faithful he was. He nourished me. He helped me. He protected me. He guarded me. He provided for me. See, in Jesus, we have this immediate spark of joy, but we also have this full and complete and real joy that lasts a lifetime. So the imposter of joy is a happiness without cost that is centered on self. The reason for joy is that God intervenes that he's providential, and the goal of joy is this eternal harvest and cosmic victory that we have in Jesus. See, joy comes, or that comes rather on the other side of our work and suffering as a gift, an emotion of the soul, but don't build your life on those short sparks of joy. Build your life on a deeper and more abiding joy that is available only through the work and suffering of another. See, the joy that comes on the other side of the work of Jesus and the suffering of Jesus is a status, not just an emotion. It's a constant disposition of who you are in Christ. So may we be joyful in that. Heavenly Father, help us. Help us to be a people who trust you and take you at your word, who come to you with our sorrow, our despair, who know the difference between a truth and a lie, that we might be a people that have real gladness, Help us this time of year too, God. It can be easy to put on a kind of temporal joy or a feeling of gladness because we don't trust that there will be real joy for us if we're honest. So embolden us in your truth. Comfort us in your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.